The following message is brought to you by Champions Church. For more information, please visit champschurch.com. Uh, I'm looking forward to getting into the Word here. Uh, if you've got your, your Bibles, uh, you can get them out and go to the book of Second Peter. I want to tell you a few things we're going to find. There's a few things that we're going to find in the Scripture here, and they're, they're things that should stand out to most of us as, as important or valuable. They sure did to me, and I hope they do for you as well. Uh, one, we're going to find what Jesus has given you. And I say has given on purpose. That's a, that's a past tense statement. It's something that Jesus has given you. I mean, I believe that he continues to give to you these things. So it is a, a continual process. But that gift has come into your life. And we're going to see what that is. Uh, another thing that we're going to find is what God has chosen you for. I mean, you've been chosen by God. That's a really powerful uh, revelation. That revelation being caught in your heart and in your mind uh, will, will be the solution to, to just about any problem you could be facing. Uh, whether those things be uh, mental or emotional or physical, the, the reality that God's chosen you is a powerful reality. And he's chosen you for something. There's a reason for his choosing you. We're going to see what the scripture says about that. Obviously, it may not be absolute. There may be multiple reasons in the scripture for that, which there, there are, but we're going to see one of them for sure. Another thing we're going to find <clears throat> is how to be in the presence of God. How to be in the presence of God. Now, when you make a statement like that, you make it with a few things understood, okay? And what I'm finding is some things that are understood are not always understood. Maybe some things that should be understood are not always. So, you can make a comment such as how to be in the presence of God, and some people write it down in their notes and they look forward to it, and other people sit there and think, well, God's everywhere, so you're always in his presence. Well, I understand that, but I'm talking about you being aware of his presence, it being a, a, a wonderful, beneficial uh, part of your life as the believer to indulge in and enjoy the presence of God. And we're going to see that in the scripture. <clears throat> so as you have turned in your Bibles, excuse me, <clears throat> to uh, 2 Peter. I want to go to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to read for a little bit here. You're going to see a lot of really great information uh, in the life of a believer uh, coming here from uh, Peter to you. So Peter is writing, and he opens up this letter with Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I, I like to stop right there and just identify now, this letter is written to you. I mean, he's writing this letter to anyone who has received the same kind of faith that he's walking in, a faith in Jesus Christ. So as a Christian, as a believer, this letter is written to me. He might as well have put my name on it, my address on it, stamped it, and sent it over from Israel to my mailbox. I mean, this letter is written to me, and as he continues to write, he says these things. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God uh, and of Jesus Christ our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of him who called us to his glory and his excellence. I want to pause there really quickly because we've jumped right in and we've seen there what Jesus has given us. 
You may have missed it, so we're going to read through it again, and we're going to acknowledge what it is that Jesus has given us. That acknowledgement of grace and peace being multiplied to you is a simple greeting in this letter to you. The statement that I want us to make a note of is in verse 3. We see that Jesus, in his divine power, has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Now, granted is not a word that I use very often. I mean, it, it almost feels like a, a more of a legal term or something like that. The word that I would use on a daily basis would be given or give. And we acknowledge before we're going to find what Jesus has given us. Based on this passage of scripture here, it is, is a true statement to say that Jesus has given me everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything that I need to live the life that God has called me to live and everything that I need to make godly choices and decisions and live a godly life has come into my life through Jesus. And it's come into my life in full. Everything necessary for life and godliness has come through Jesus. And this has a purpose. It's to call us to his glory and to his excellence. It goes on to say this, by these things... He has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them, by those precious and magnificent promises, we might become partakers in the divine nature and escape the corruption that is in this world by its lust. I mean, this is a really important passage of scripture that's worth kind of camping out on, reading and rereading and just asking yourself as you read it, now what does that mean? I mean, it's a pretty big deal what's being revealed here that, that Jesus has brought into our lives the things that we need to live and to live in the godly way that we've been called to live, that this is so that we can partake in the divine nature. That means like partake in who God is. Partake meaning to share or, or to partner in. And all of this bears witness with the rest of the word that God has come to, to make his abode with us. That just as Jesus prayed that the same way that he and the Father are one, that we might be one with he and the Father. This is a really exciting and powerful passage of scripture. The call on your life to the glory of God and to the excellence of God is a really incredible and great thing that all comes through Jesus. Now verse 5, I want to acknowledge these promises that are spoken of in the previous passages. Now for this very reason, apply with all diligence to your faith the following. Supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. Now, we have talked about this passage of Scripture before in the past, and we've used it as kind of a pathway to, to love, where we've seen these things as steps, and that's a really good way to look at it. What I want to identify here is that everything that God has given us to partake in his nature is listed in this uh, list of attributes here. And I want to talk today about that first one, that, that foundational one, that one being moral excellence. I mean, the idea that moral excellence is something that Jesus would bring into our lives so that we could be like God is a really wonderful and powerful thing. 
And if we can begin to see moral excellence as foundational in our call to walk in and to partake in the divine nature, it can help us to understand why morality is under such attack in our culture. I don't think anyone in the room here would deny that. I mean, if I were to say, hey, do you feel like morals, uh, godly morals and morality are under attack in our culture, uh, most hands would go up and there would be a yes and amen. Uh, I think that there's not just a, a generic uh, attack on those things. I think there are strategic attacks on those things. I think uh, men and women who are believers are individually and personally attacked in their morality by uh, uh, dark and demonic schemes to, to disrupt the things that God has brought into their life for the purpose of them walking in the divine nature. Now, none of those things have the power or the authority to disrupt or to uh, unseat your eternal destination in the sense that God's forgiveness and his grace are powerful and beyond those things. None of those things are a threat to the blood of Jesus. However, those things do carry a defilement that keep us from walking in or producing the things that God has called us and anointed us to walk in and produce. And that would be referred to in the scripture as fruit. To bear the fruit of the kingdom of God, the righteousness, the peace, the joy in the Holy Ghost. To be like Jesus and tear down the works of Satan and build up the kingdom of God. So what's understood here is that there's something that is important and valuable, something that is foundational in our walk and our call to be like God, to partake in his nature, to share in who he is. That thing that Jesus brought into our life that he gives us so that we can have the, the life and the godliness that we've been called to have. I want to give you a passage of scripture from the Psalms. Psalm 11, I want to look at verse 3. Now, when we see moral excellence at the beginning of this list, I offer that to you with this perspective and this thought that it would be foundational. I mean, if you wanted to bring a house to the ground, you could either start at the roof and start peeling off the shingles, and then you could take off the decking, and then you could take off the framing, and then you could, you could eventually work it to the ground. If you wanted to demolish a house quickly, you could just rip the foundation out from under it and watch it fall to pieces. Now, this passage of scripture from the Psalms is something that's worth noting. Psalm 11.3, if the foundation be destroyed, what can the righteous do? If you pull the foundation out from something, it's going to be very difficult for it to stand. Now, if we've built our, our Christianity and we've built our faith all uh, based on discipleship and in the word to walk in love and brotherly kindness and perseverance and godliness and self-control and knowledge and all of those things that are on this list, but we let morality slip, then everything that is built on morality is destined to fall. I mean, you can see that even in our, our, our relationships that are uh, uh, present, whether it be friendships, whether it be uh, marriage, whether it be uh, any aspect of relationship, where you see immorality enter in, you begin to see everything else fail and fall. So moral excellence is not just something that is on the list. Rather, it is a foundational element of our Christianity. It's a foundational element of our faith. It's at the very heart and foundation of everything that we would build upon, and that would indicate exactly why moral excellence is under such attack. So I want to keep reading here from, from 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1 now, once this list is given, this list that begins with moral excellence, we begin to see the power and the importance of these qualities, these qualities that start with moral excellence, when we get to verse 8. 
If these qualities are yours and they are increasing, they're, they're stirring in your life, they're active in your life, they will render you neither useless or unfruitful. I mean, this is a really great thing. You will always be productive and useful and you will always be uh, uh, producing. This is a wonderful and excellent promise that's worth noting. I mean, it, it seems to come at the tail end of things that are really important, but yet this is really the promise. That when moral excellence is allowed to be the foundation for the things that God has brought into our life to let us share in his nature, we become productive. We begin to produce for the kingdom of God, and that's a really wonderful and precious promise. And it goes on to talk about these things being missing. In verse 9, the one who lacks these qualities, now this is not an insult, there's no rock chunking here, this is simply a statement. When morality begins to disappear and everything that is built upon morality begins to erode without that foundation beneath it, the result is that person is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from former sins. And then this call comes again to be uh, uh, diligent. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent. Make certain of the calling and the choosing of you. For when you practice these things, as long as these things are present, you will never stumble. Can you think of a more incredible promise than that? I mean, I really can't. It's not even conditional upon a certain set of circumstances or a certain situation. It's, it's not like, hey, if you apply these to business, your business will always succeed. It's not limited to any part of our life. It's every aspect of living. You can apply it to anything. You can apply it to business. You can apply it to family. You can apply it to marriage. You can apply it to, to friendships. You can apply it to anything. And at the foundation, you'll see moral excellence being important. I want to talk about that word for a second, moral excellence. I mean, it, it's a word that, that is important in the scripture. And when we, when we open up and we see the definition of that word, I think it could stand out as, as maybe something that you could understand in a greater way why it might be under attack, maybe how it's under attack. I'll explain when we get there. Here, here, here we go. When you look up the word that is moral excellence, in a concordance, what you'll find is that the first definition is manliness. Isn't that interesting? Manliness. But you know what's really funny is that when I think of, of some of the, the most admirable men that I've ever been around, they've been men of tremendous character, men of strong morality, men who weren't given to be seduced by, by sin and temptation and all kinds of garbage that would end up putting them in bondage and positioning them in a place of weakness. I mean, that's a really great thing to look at, that, to think that, that the definition biblically of moral excellence opens with manliness. I mean, when I start to read that, when I think of that, I pause and I think, huh, is manliness under attack in our culture? Yeah, it is. Have you seen some of the jeans they make today? I'm just joking. I, I, if I can squeeze a skinny jean joke in there, I'm going to do it. I have some near and dear friends. My brother is the king of skinny jeans. And so, like, I'll get their Christmas card and I'll write back, you know, hey, I'm glad to see that you can wear Amity's pants, you know. <laughs> it's just, you got you to gotta get them in there when you can, right? So and there's nothing wrong with those jeans. The point is, is that I do see manliness under attack. It's under attack everywhere. I mean, in fact, there's just a, a general consensus that our whole nation is flawed because it's built on a... a, a, a 
tyrannical patriarchy. That's, that's now a message that's going out through the woke community that's just rippling that everything is wrong because of men. You know, so you'll see this attack on manliness. Well, when you read the concordance, you get the biblical definition of these words and you begin to see like, wow, basically what you're beginning to attack here is morality. I mean, manliness is the Trojan horse that you want to wheel into the gate. But what's going to come out of that Trojan horse and begin to slit throats in the night is going to be wickedness, this attack on morality. Before you know it, immorality will prevail. The foundation that all of our moral excellence uh, uh, serves as, as the, the foundation for all of those elements of godliness and the divine nature will begin to fall along with it. So as you continue in the, the concordance here with the biblical definition, it opens with manliness. The example is, is excellence uh, of virtue. And then you have a list of definitions, and I'll just simply read them as they are so that we don't pick and choose which ones we like. A virtuous course of thought, feeling, or action. The, the next definition would be a virtue or moral goodness. And then the, the final definition there that's listed is any particular moral excellence, as in modesty or purity. So you can take those last two and begin to ask that same question. Is this under attack? Is modesty under attack? I mean, I, I got to say, it, it, it's hard to watch. Even if you find wholesome television to watch, every eight minutes it's interrupted by a sex scene in a commercial. You know? I mean, modesty is under attack. What, what was once considered taboo is not taboo anymore. Purity. Is purity under attack? Oh, absolutely purity is under attack. Uh, compromised choices and decisions are, are being identified as an individual's right, and, and those things are, are not labeled taboo because we don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. Well, right is still right, and wrong is still wrong. My intention is not to set out to hurt anyone's feelings. My intention is to lead people into truth and righteousness in the kind and gentle and Christ-like way. I mean, there's no doubt about that, that the believer has a call on their life to tear down the works of the devil and to build the kingdom of God. I think those are biblical words. When we hear words like tear down, we think of insult and we think of destruction. And, and that's not how Jesus did it at all. You never see Jesus stand and begin to insult people. He never opened up a message with, listen up, you whores. You don't see that. But you see him begin to minister to a people in such a way that the demonic oppression that is on their life becomes undesirable. I, I told a, a, an example once in Africa, and it's one of those things. Have you ever said something and just thought, man, that sounded smart? Well, it doesn't happen very often for me. So when it did happen, it really stood out, right? We were with a group of people, and as we were ministering, we began to talk about how to, to, to function and operate in, in transforming this community. This community was having really awful uh, uh, crime and corruption. It was a really rough deal. And, and the example was, and, and we maybe have shared this here on occasion. If we have, just bear with me and let me share it again. The example was uh, that, that sin is everywhere. Corruption is everywhere. 
And, and for an example, we, we used uh, Coca-Cola because Coca-Cola is everywhere. If you've ever, you know, traveled to the most remote part of the world, you'll see people, you know, riding on camels or, or you know, riding on donkeys, and they'll have a cell phone and a bottle of Coca-Cola. And I've said before, you know, if Coca-Cola was the gospel, we would have covered the globe by now, you know. I mean, it, it's, it's there. It's everywhere. So if your goal or your mission was to get rid of Coca-Cola, how would you do it? I mean, would you just raid the stores at night and clear the shelves and break the bottles and make public displays of it, you know, where you have everyone bring their Coke by force and you pour it out in front of them and shame them for having Coca-Cola? I mean, is that how you do it? Probably not because the next day the stores would be restocked and the shelves would be filled with Coca-Cola again. So then how do you get rid of it? If your mission or your goal or your commission or your whatever purpose you had in your life was to rid the world of this product, this Coca-Cola, how would you do it? And, and the answer that we came to was the only real solution is to make a better product. And that's what you see Jesus do. Jesus is constantly offering a better product. And as he begins to tear down the works of the devil, it's not through the throwing of rocks or the hurling of insults or the shaming or the humiliation, but rather he's offering forgiveness, mercy, grace, life, healing, resurrection. And as he offers a greater product, a better product, a life-giving product, people abandon their commitment to that which is destructive. That is how we destroy the works of the devil, and that is how we build the kingdom of God. And it's the calling that's on your life and my life. And by the way, you may not know this, but it's the truth. You are the better product. Your life, every aspect of your living, the way that you carry yourself, the way that you conduct yourself, the way you make choices and decisions and speak, and, and, and the way you handle stress and strain, even though we may have issues and trials on occasions, we're meant to support each other and grow through those things for the purpose of being a better product that is living evangelism. So I mentioned before we're going to find out uh, what God chose you for. You're chosen, and he chose you for a purpose. I want to give you a couple of passages of Scripture. One, just the idea that you're chosen. It's good to have for your notes. This is a good one to slap on the refrigerator or put on your rearview mirror in your car. Don't block your view. But it's one to expose yourself to often the idea that Jesus chooses you. John 15, 16. John 15, 16 says, you did not choose me. Now, this is Jesus talking. It's helpful to know that it's Jesus speaking. And he says, you did not choose me but I chose you. And I appointed you that you would go and be fruitful and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, I'll give it to, he'll give it to you, excuse me. Now, this is a, a, a passage of scripture that you could read right past and, and just think, well, that's nice. But if we stop and we think about what it means to, to, to have choice, it can really build you up. I mean, the idea that there is a choice is the idea that there are options. Have you ever had a choice before where there were no options? No, it wouldn't be a choice otherwise, right? I mean, so the reality is, is you have to understand that none of this is under duress. Jesus is never going to be able to say, well, you were the, the, the only option, and so that's why we're together. 
He's never able to say that I'm stuck with you or this is really, you know, God made you and so here we are. But rather there's choice and decision. He's able to say, I selected you. I had a choice. Not just that I'm just only choosing a few and you're the best option, but rather I didn't have to choose anybody. His love and his affection for you is not under duress. It's not under any obligation, but rather it's by choice. That's encouraging to me. There are days where I feel like a total dirt bag, but I can always be encouraged by, well, God chose me. Well, Jesus chose me. I didn't choose him, but he chose me. We have a saying in our house. Now, this saying is, is often a, a source of conviction, but what you choose is what you love. What you choose is what you love. When I say it's a source of conviction, I mean, there are times where my schedule is, is tight and, and there's not time for, for you know, a, a family and things like that, and I make these choices and decisions, and oftentimes they're, they're with good intentions, but they might have destructive results, and I have to be careful. What you choose is what you love. When I find that I'm choosing the things that I, I, I am, am not called to prioritize, I have to ask myself, is that getting the love that is meant to be for something else? Or in that example, someone else. What you choose is what you love. And as I see that Jesus chose me, it's revelation, and it's the greatest revelation, in my opinion, that he loves me. And no matter how much I would memorize the cadence, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I don't have to convince myself through a cadence. I'm understanding that his love for me is manifest because he chose me. And it couldn't be manifest in any stronger or greater way. So we've gotten out of the way that you are chosen. How important it is to understand that now. What did he choose you for? What's the purpose? Here, here's the passage of scripture that we were ultimately getting to. I mentioned before we're going to find what God chose you for. Here it is, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. It opens up with the concept of being chosen. You are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You can feel the crescendo rising as this identity is being released and then listen to these words, so that you're about to find out why you were chosen, what you were chosen for, what the purpose is, what the reason is behind your selection, your involvement and your inclusion in this chosen race, this holy priesthood, this holy nation, this people for God's own possession. You are a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the moral excellence of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Isn't that interesting? You were chosen so that you could proclaim, so that your life could put on display the moral excellence of him, of being possessive. Remember, you could say, hey, that's Preston's Bible, or you could say, hey, well, that's the Bible of Preston. I mean, I know that sounds goofy and weird, but it's a possessive word. The moral excellence that belongs to God. Your calling and your purpose in your life, being chosen as a, a believer, a Christian, your selection in this has been so that you can put on display his excellence, his moral excellence. Dare I say to you guys in the congregation, his manliness. <laughs> the valor and the courage, and I'm telling you, to make moral decisions takes courage. 
And in our culture, the courage is required because you will be required to swim against the stream. It's easy to just go along with what's going on. It's tough to stand and to be different, to be prepared to be alienated, to be prepared to be rejected, to be prepared to be laughed at and scoffed at. Those things take courage to stand knowing what's coming. And we are different. I want to give you a passage of scripture here as we continue to identify the importance of moral excellence and those things that are in our life. I'll give you a passage of scripture from Ephesians because as I'm aware of the importance of moral excellence, I begin to examine my life. Because the message could stop there and it could become a message about how important morality is. But I think it's important for us to examine how does this become a reality in our lives. I mean, I want to to stand upon moral excellence. If Jesus is bringing it into my life and it's the foundation for every godly attribute, I want to see to it that morality and moral excellence is present and thriving in my life. In in the book of Ephesians chapter 5, we see something that is important to to note because every single person has an issue in their life of the need for Light, a need for the purging of darkness, a need for the, the, the casting out of that which is immoral and the impartation of that which is moral. That excellence must be present and there's a way to pursue that. You'll find it here in Ephesians. Ephesians eleven fourteen. Don't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. It's disgraceful to speak of those things which are done in secret. But all things become visible when they're exposed by light. For everything that becomes visible is light. And it's for this reason that the word says, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So there's a wonderful awareness that takes place in the life of the believer. And I'm going to give you an example from my life. The awakening of your conscience to be sensitive to the conviction of the Holy Ghost. These are things that are are at work in every person's life. And I can tell you for me personally, when I became a believer and I became a Christian, this became uh, uh, so present, so absolutely uh, overwhelming that it demanded and required response. Let me give you an example of what I mean by that so it doesn't just sound so uh, ridiculously vague. You'll see someone like the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul will tell you, before Jesus, I was perfect. I I kept every letter of the law. I was a Pharisee's Pharisee, is how he would say it, you know. And then after Jesus, all of a sudden, you, you hear him say things like, I'm the chief of sinners, right? So we really don't think that Jesus coming into our life would, would make us in, in, be in that position. Now, Paul wasn't self-loathing. He wasn't going around beating himself or walking in some inferior state of identity. Rather, he's saying, I'm now aware of the garbage in my life. Because Jesus brings light into my life, that light now exposes all the garbage in my life. And now that I'm a Christian, it's time to see to it that that garbage goes. It's time to take out the trash. Before, I didn't see it as a problem. Now I do. 
Uh, this came up in the men's group on, on Saturday yesterday. I remember sitting with my wife watching a television program, a television program that we'd watched for season upon season. And one day we're sitting there watching it and we just look at each other. And I can see that we're thinking the same thing. I think she actually said it first, but I don't think we should be watching this. And it just clicked. Okay, and we just shut it off, never turned it back on. Because there's an awareness, a conviction inside of us that we've responded to. And these are the things that Jesus is bringing into the life of every believer. That conviction and that awareness, that light shining in so that things can happen and things can happen in a positive and forward-moving direction. A direction in which there is a celebration of moral excellence. Moral excellence that provides the foundation for every other divine attribute to build upon. So here's the rest of the scripture from Ephesians. That, that concept of, of those things being present in our lives and light exposing those things, there's a wonderful, powerful promise that when those things become exposed by light, they then become light. I mean, the idea that the garbage that was once detrimental to our lives can become something that is productive that it can become part of our testimony is really a wonderful and exciting thing. And it's there where we see the kingdom of God expanding in our lives individually and then collectively in our communities. And the foundation for this work to take place is moral excellence. I want to give you this final passage of scripture here. I mentioned we're going to find out uh, how to, to be in the presence of God. And we talked about uh, uh, you know, how that might be uh, offensive to some, that God's present everywhere. What I'm referring to is being aware of God's presence, being mindful that he's near, and being able to embrace and walk in lockstep with him in fellowship. Philippians chapter 4, I want to read verses 4 through 9. It reads like this, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known before all men that the Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and, and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, did you note that? The peace of God will surpass all understanding and guard your hearts and minds in Christ. Now verse 8, finally, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good reputation, if there's any excellence, there's the word we're looking for, Moral excellence. And if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things that you've learned and received. The things that you see in my example. Practice these things. And now you're not going to see the peace of God, but listen to what you see. And the God of peace will be with you. It's one thing to have the peace of God. Well, I want to make these choices and decisions this way so that I can have peace. You know, I'll sleep good at night knowing that I didn't wrong anyone today. Well, that's a, a noble pursuit, I guess. But the reality is, as we begin to function on the moral excellence and build on the moral excellence that Jesus introduces into our life, the open door for fellowship with the God of peace is the ultimate reward that our daily fellowship with him becomes something more than obligation, becomes something more than tradition, becomes something more than routine, but rather it becomes relational. It truly becomes a, a, a reciprocated fellowship, one of, of communication and one of awareness and one of a rich reward in fellowship. 
And it's this result that I long for in the life of, of, of me personally and my children and, and everyone that, that I would be around, that we would build upon the moral excellence supplied by Jesus in such a way that we might acknowledge the builder himself and that that fellowship be something so real and so genuine that when people would identify the body of Christ, the congregation, they would be left with no greater description than to say God is with them. Not they believe in God, but God is with them. I want to ask you to stand with me this morning. If everything that we would build upon would be built upon the moral excellence supplied by Jesus Christ, I want to pray this morning that moral excellence be prioritized, be cherished. I want to make this statement to you because I think this statement is important to make. Moral excellence is not something that is achieved through works. It's something that is, is provided by God's mercy through Jesus. The choices, the decisions, the activities, the surrender and the submitting to, to being a child of God and pursuing the will of God, that cherishing of that moral excellence is what sustains and protects that foundation from weakening and, and eroding and being defiled by the corruption that exists in the world. It can be simple things like be taking care of what we watch and what we listen to. It can, it can be more complex things like revisiting uh, old ways of thinking and, and handling relationships differently than we were once okay with. But one thing is for sure, God is very interested in addressing the moral excellence of every individual on an individual basis. I mean, and he's present and he's near to do so at, at any given moment. And it's my desire that even in this moment as we pray, that the awareness of the importance and the value of moral excellence be heightened in every believer. That we would begin to see the strategies of our enemy to erode every godly thing by eroding morality in our lives and in our households. And that we might take on ourselves not any obligation, but a simple conviction to cherish and protect morality. It may cause us to look different. It may cause us to be culturally irrelevant. But one thing is for certain. It will lay the foundation for every godly attribute to thrive in our lives and in our homes. And that's the point. I want to pray. I want to ask God to do this work by His Spirit. There where you're at, you're welcome to be in agreement or a state of receiving. We're going to trust God for great things here. Father, we bless your name. We thank you that you would share your nature with us. Let the divine nature be revealed to us in new and greater ways. Your nature. Not something pursued academically, but something that would be enjoyed and felt and seen relationally. That your nature would become something that would be sought after and longed. Longed for in every believer that we might come to the place where our desire to be like you would lead us to surrender the things that would get in the way of that call and that purpose that you have so richly blessed us with. And here and now, we specifically ask for a move by your spirit in our morality, the way that we think, the choices that we make, how we speak and conduct ourselves, those things that we would, would tolerate or indulge, 
Let the things that we take in be the things that would bring you honor and glory. And let the things that would be a hindrance to moral excellence being foundational to all else in our lives, let those things be revealed by a gentle conviction of the Holy Ghost. And give us the courage and the strength as your children to respond to that conviction in a way that would destroy the works of the devil and strengthen and establish your kingdom. Let moral excellence thrive among your people. Let us see it as the intentional uh, foundation that you have laid to build all else upon. And let that foundation be strong in each of us as your kingdom continues to thrive in and through our lives. We bless your name and we thank you in the mighty name of Jesus. And all the saints declare, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Champions Church. We invite you to join us this Sunday for our celebration worship service. For more information, please visit us at chamschurch.com.